This week on the show, we do a little comparison of FreeBSD versus Linux in the networking space. We have a Raspberry Pi tutorial, how to run FreeBSD on that. Getting started with a Tmux tutorial, also good to know about in the new year, getting your Tmux models fresh out. Assemble Active Directory on a Raspberry Pi, also interesting. And OpenIKED 7.2 has been released, FreeBSD Plasma 5 GUI installed, that Benedict translates live from the German text, and other things in this week's episode of BSD Now. Now, episode 489, Refreshing Perspective, recorded on the 14th of, well, still December 2022. We'll get there soon. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com, also in the new year, to check out the paranoid way for people to back up their files and directories. And if you want to support this show one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome. The new year is still fresh and young, but we have always headlines for you every week. It's just a never-ending stream of good stuff in the BSD world, and we will be happy to share it with you. This time, it's FreeBSD versus Linux networking. So this is not, uh, you know, a fight. It's just a comparison, a friendly comparison, and at the end, we're just giving each other a hand and be happy at all. This one is from Clara Systems and covers networking, of course, and is incredibly important to any OS implementation. And they discuss several network technologies there where Linux and FreeBSD have equivalent but different implementations. So this is just a different flavor of sorts. So they uh, refer to an earlier article they have about easily migrating from Linux to FreeBSD, where they touched on some of the two platforms network configuration differences. But in this one, they go deeper into those differences uh, in uh, more detail. So a bit of background is given, where Linux and FreeBSD have equivalent but different implementations, and then we dive a bit deeper. So the first is the system utilities. So as they covered in the previous article, History of FreeBSD Part 4, BSD and TCP IP, TCP was brought to Unix with BSD first. Many common network utilities like ifconfig, route, and netstat date back to the 4.2 BSD release and spread from there to other Unix systems. Linux started out with similar utilities modeled on the BSD utilities. These packages continue to be widely available, but most modern Linux distributions have deprecated them in favor of alternate utilities such as IP. Yeah, that mostly has to do with um, keeping the tools in sync with the kernel and those changing at different paces. And so switching to the, the IP tool and its Netlink interface made that easier for them. Uh, speaking of Netlink, uh, so that is a more flexible socket-based interface and called Netlink. And interestingly enough, Netlink support was recently added to FreeBSD as well and should be available in FreeBSD 14. Uh, this is mainly relevant to the use of the Linux Linuxulator by running Linux applications and containers that could then make it easier to port Linux software to FreeBSD because the networking parts are fairly similar, if not completely equal. Um, yeah, but uh, we got a kind of an intro to Netlink at the EuroBSDCon Developer Summit, and there's a lot of cool functionality in there that will be useful in FreeBSD outside of the Linux Uh In fact, I'm looking at 
can we use Netlink's uh, generic interface to make uh, it an interface to pass events about ZFS so that uh -huh. we can uh, have something more universal than DevD and a little more something you could easily have multiple applications listening on to get events like, hey, a new disk showed up. Do we want to partition it and add it to the pool? Or, you know, disk just went away. What do we want to do about it? And so on and be able to plumb all that uh, and have this kind of generic flexible socket pub sub filtered interface uh in FreeBSD as well oh yeah cool but does that mean everyone has to learn a new uh if config versus ip uh nope. command? no no i'm not, not suggesting to change any of that yet <laughs> yeah that's a bit further down the road we'll have to see but linux ip tools loosely corresponds to if config on FreeBSD but the arguments take a different form. IP takes a list of subcommands in a strict and structured order. Ifconfig takes an interface device as its first argument, and the arguments that follow specify options or actions where the ordering is more flexible. Better learn both, so... Yeah, but that flexibility is, is good and bad. Uh, you know, not needing to put a bunch of the redundant keywords in there, uh, I appreciate often, but also the fact that you know, you can get away with certain things with IPv4, where the same thing won't work on IPv6. The ordering is more strict there. Uh, does make life a little more complicated. Uh, and having, you know, just been a fan of ZFS and the way its command lines are structured, where it's like ZFS, do thing, to thing, um, I kind of see the appeal of this other way of doing it. But uh, I, my fingers know how to do if config without thinking. And I, I don't know that I want to ever change it. Yeah. The other day, a student asked me how to add a default gateway to a virtual machine they created. And on Linux, of course. And I had to look it up. And it was very verbose and longer than the one I used on FreeBSD. But it's probably yeah. more. Uh, on FreeBSD, that'd be route add default, then the IP address. Mm -hmm. And now it's that's your default gateway. Yeah. But yeah, I had to provide a device as well. and. It was a bit longer than I was expecting. Uh, going back to the article, uh, these two commands are only used to change the current live network settings. Linux distributions take varying approaches to configuring network settings to be applied on boot, whereas the FreeBSD initialization scripts use variables from rc.conf. These map closely to the associated ifconfig invocations, and the value of the variable named ifconfig underscore interface name is passed directly to ifconfig. The following shows both simple and more complex example, and so these are uh, setting up a lag device for uh, failover. Between yeah, and the article includes a, a table as a kind of Rosetta Stone to translate, you know, if I want to add an additional IP address to an interface on FreeBSD, that'd be, you know, if config EM0 alias the IP, whereas on Linux, that'd be IP adder add the IP address dev and then the device yeah. name. That's good to know to look it up quickly. Yeah. Uh, but what's really nice about doing it the Rosetta Stone style like this is if you're a FreeBSD user and happen to need to use Linux, then this can translate that direction. But if you're a Linux user and you know how to do it there, it can translate in the other direction. It makes it really easy to you know become ambidextrous. Yeah. Okay. A little further down, there's about uh, container networking that you should know about. The containers on Linux are formed from separate namespaces for users, process IDs, file system mounts, network stack, and other internal structures. Each of these are independent, so a container may be configured to share the host network space or to use a separate namespace. This choice of whether to share the host network stack also exists for jails on FreeBSD. 
Arcade and they talk about host networking. On Linux, running a container in the host network namespace means that these same IP address and routing tables are shared. On FreeBSD, FreeBSD's IP addresses are assigned to jails. These are created as additional aliases on existing network interfaces. Jails processes, uh, uh, jailed processes uh, are restricted to only using addresses assigned to the jail. The end result is somewhat similar to using IP VLAN on Linux. And to communicate between jails, it can be useful to assign them IP addresses in the loopback subnet, which means they are addressable only from the physical uh, system from the same one. And there's an example from jail.conf there to reference. Yeah, the given configuration gives the jail address uh, 127.0.0.6 inside the localhost subnet, which contains all addresses from 127.0.0.0 to 127.255.255.255. And consider a host system with one jail, which runs a database, and a separate jail, which runs an application which connects to that database. Having the database listen on a public IP address, or even a LAN addressable address, may not be desirable. Running on the localhost subnet ensures that the database will only be accessible to the physical machine it's running on. Okay, and then there's a bit about nullfs mounts, where that is uh, also possible to connect to a Unix domain socket in two different jails. Because the host system has visibility of all the jail IP addresses associated with them, it is tidier to take care of processes on the host around listening on the jail address. The default configuration for a lot of server software is to listen on all addresses on all interfaces. If both hosts and jail listen on the same port, the jail does get precedence, but ensuring there's no accidental overlap can avoid confusion. Like who is responding to this request and yeah, potential uh, edge cases? That one's caught me before. Uh, I like the fact that I can just start the jail and if I run something in the jail, it goes to the jail and if it's not, it goes to the host. But then if you had a web server running in the jail, uh, and you know that IP and it was working, and then that web server got stopped for one reason or another, um, and suddenly that same port on that same IP address now goes to the nginx on the host, and you get, you know, a 404 that you weren't expecting. It can be very confusing. Uh, so, yeah, uh, there's some advantages not having to reprogram all of the uh, services on the host to only listen on certain IPs, uh, but there's also some uh, advantages to to bothering to do that to make sure that you know when the jail's down the service is down not the service falls through to the host because uh, also this can happen with ssh uh, oh yeah and then you get the the host key warning it's like hey this isn't the same host and you're like what's going on it's like oh the jail's not running or the sshd in the jail's not running so it's falling through to sshd on the host and that's not the same ssh <laughs> Back key. through the main door <laughs> okay then there's a bit about virtualized networking uh, having a separate virtualized network stack is only useful if there is a network interface that can be used for communicating with other systems. On Linux, network interfaces can be assigned to a network namespace. And you can use IP to do this, uh, such as IP link set dev IP VL0, net NS NS0. Okay. Uh, with VNet jails and FreeBSD, the same basic approach is taken, but interfaces to be passed to the jail are configured in jail.conf with the vnet.interface parameter. There's a separate article from Clara about this, if you want to configure that. Then there's a section about bridges, routers, and firewalls, but I think you should read that on your own. There's another one about link aggregation and virtual IPs. So it's fine. Oh, traffic shaping also. Uh, fine article, and I guess you will get a lot of stuff from that. Cool. Again, this is not a fight. This is more of a friendly comparison and then 
shaking yeah. hands. This is really about how just to be able to translate between the two so that if you're coming from Linux, getting to FreeBSD, you know, you know what it's called on Linux, but what is that thing called on FreeBSD? Yeah. Okay, then next in our list of headlines, we have an HDMI sound output through TV speakers solution on FreeBSD 13. So that's a bit more involved, but it's on the Raspberry Pi forum, so we thought this would be interesting to a couple of people. Yeah, uh, the best po uh, basically this started out as a question on how to do this, uh, but the best type of question is one that got answered, uh, so even better. So they uh, have an original post here about using GhostBSD on ARM64, um, but they say they started with uh, a Raspberry Pi 4B, uh, so one USB with an 8 gig flash drive, 120 gig USB external drive, and their uh, Raspberry Pi. So they started by downloading the Raspberry Pi 3 image and writing it to the USB flash stick and booting from that flash stick uh, on that snapshot image and they show how to download FreeBSD. Uh, so they wrote the USB stick to uh, their flash drive and they have some examples of how to do this on different OSs and using different tools like Etcher and Rufus and so on. So then they set up the Raspberry Pi to boot from the USB drive. So they insert their USB flash drive in, and boot the Raspberry Pi hardware from it. They ran Raspi comp program to update the network configuration to boot from USB flash uh, in, before the micro SD card. And they attached the USB SSD and ran BSD install uh, and attached an external drive. And then, so right after they ran BSD install, they installed to the, that blank SSD that they connected. Uh, and so USB stick with the FreeBSD image on it and then a USB connected SSD to actually write the, the OS to. And then so they didn't install that way. And they also linked to the wiki and some uh, the handbook on how to get the install going. So once that's done, they, uh, you know, after booting from the FreeBSD kernel uh, on the external USB SSD uh, with an Ethernet cable connected to the gigabit port on the Raspberry Pi, they were able to ping their router and make sure the DNS worked and all that was great. They checked that their uh, local time was correct. Uh, so that they'll be able to download packages because the SSL certificate won't validate and uh, everything else will go wrong if your clock thinks it's 1970 uh, and that you're downloading files from the future. <laughs> so they did a package update and a package upgrade and made sure all their packages are good uh, and they made sure the date's good, set their root password and so on. Uh, so now they want to customize their FreeBSD a bit. So they used uh, they installed Git and cloned the FreeBSD source tree. Uh, got that set up and going. Uh, then they built a kernel. Yeah, yeah so it's really a how-to, not a um, stock question. Yeah. Uh, but the best way to ask a question is to document everything you've done so far and then document the stuff as you try it because it really makes it easier to help you. Uh, so then they build kernel and install kernel, making this generic dash VCHIQ uh, so that they'll be able to do this. Uh, you know, they note that it took about five hours on their Raspberry Pi 4 with eight gigs of RAM at 1.5 gigahertz. Uh, but they also credit the RoboNugi uh, YouTube channel for getting some help. Uh, so then they patched the FreeBSD source code to add the HDMI audio VCHIQ patch. And that's why they were, you know, building this kernel. And they reboot and start it up. And then they cat dev SND stat. And suddenly they have HDMI audio. So now, uh, as expected, HDMI port number zero sound will work and output to my television connected by HDMI from the TV. 
Uh, so when my TV is displaying the Raspberry Pi 4's desktop screen, opening Firefox and go to YouTube, play some videos, and there's audio. Uh, the computer really comes alive with HDMI audio, the regular 2.5 millimeter analog headphones, uh, USB audio headphones, and so on. Uh, should work after this patch applied and they show that it does. So has this patch reached the uh, committed state now? I uh, think at the so. Where's the link? Because that stuff seems like it could be useful for everyone, not just finding it in a random forum. Mm -hmm. Shipping it with the OS. Uh, a bit of discussion. Uh, October 28th, last time someone looked at it. Ah, here's one from Ed. Uh, at Mass, that is. A uh, couple of things to yeah, shape it up to get it into the main line. And then it's soon part of the tree, I guess. Yep. So hopefully that will get in there. Excellent. Yeah, I initially thought when I looked at the headline, it's like, oh, I'm stuck with a problem and it's solved. But I didn't expect it to have a full FreeBSD on the Raspberry Pi to talk. Good stuff. News Roundup time. In this episode, we have a getting started guide with Tmux for you from the ittavern.com. And for the people who have never heard about Tmux, a few of you, quite good, new people anyway, Tmux is a terminal multiplexer. It allows you to work with multiple terminal sessions at once. So why have just one terminal open? Because you can have multiple ones and switch between them. Uh, installation is really easy, and there's a ton of guides already out there. So no need to cover that in this tutorial. Package install of Tmux. Um, <laughs> so let us start with the basics. There's a Tmux server program and a session and a window and a pane. These are the terms you need to understand and distinguish between. So the Tmux server program is greater than the session, they say. The session is greater than the window and the smallest part is the pane. P-A-N-E, not P-A-I-N. Um, okay. Tmux server starts after running Tmux. You can work on attached sessions or detach them so they run in the background, even after disconnecting from SSH. So you can let a job run pretty much forever until the server has a power outage. Every server can have multiple sessions. Every session can have multiple windows, and each can be split into a window with multiple panes. The pane is a normal terminal window at the end, so it's all the way down. Uh, there are a lot of use cases for this. Tmux makes it easy, for example, to separate projects in different windows or sessions, like you are used from maybe a desktop environment where you have multiple screens that have maybe one for work, one for projects, one for private browsing, whatever. The prefix or lead or meta key, default prefix or something called lead is control B or CB in short, and it's usually the start of a Tmux shortcut to use a Tmux command. So you press this and then another key to make Tmux understand that this is now a Tmux command and not meant to be typed into the shell, for example. When you see something like prefix plus C, press Control plus B and then C afterwards. So they prefer Control plus S, for example. I've seen uh, people map it to Control uh, Y because it's closer to the Control key. And there's also Control A if you're used to the screen command. Right, and I think the main reason they use Control B is so that you can have a screen in a Tmux or a Tmux in a screen and it won't 
fight <laughs> <laughs> each other. More nesting all the way. Okay. Uh, as a side note, you'll find some shortcuts with a M in them. This is the meta key, which is uh, Alt for Linux, uh, CMD probably for macOS, and sometimes even Escape. Oh, yeah. But you can always remap those keys if these are not to your liking. There's a tmux config file, of course, where you can change these prefixes. And this would change the prefix, for example, uh, colon set dash g prefix and then c dash s to set it to control s in this case. So if you want to make changes permanently, enter that into your .tmux.conf in your home directory where it's looking for um, any config changes each time tmux is started. And if there is no config file, simply create it and restart tmux or reload it. And this goes, uh, it has a couple of other things you can put in there, but it's a good start. Okay, working with panes. So you can uh, create those to split a window in multiple panes. You can split the window vertically or horizontally as you wish and change it as much as, much as you pos possibly can. Look at your keyboard real quick at the percent key. It looks like there's a divider between two bubbles, right? And that's exactly the divider to split horizontally. So that's a good mnemonic. And now look at your double quote key. That also is um, somewhat resembling a vertically uh, separation. So I guess the prefix for horizontal split to percent sign is better to distinguish. But even those you can remap to some other kind of key combination. You can also move between those panes or switch them around, like put the left to the right and the left to the bottom or something. And you can also convert the current pane into a completely new window. So for example, full screen. And of course, you can also close them again if they become too many using the prefix plus X to X them out. There are shortcuts for resizing, moving paints around, and so on, but those aren't that important for this primer. And they wrote a separate post about sending input to all paints within a window, very powerful, and there is a separate link to that as well. They also have an instruction to work with windows. I mean windows, not windows. Um, <laughs> they prefer uh, to create separate windows for their projects, right? Again, one for browsing, one for email, one for that next cool thing you're working on. Although if you're browsing in Tmux, I think you're doing it wrong. <laughs> then really can't help you there. But yeah, so, I, I really do find panes can be interesting, uh, like even stuff when you're, you know, I want to do something to the system and then the other side of the screen, I want to watch what happens. Uh, you know, like if I'm running top or gstat or zpool iostat or something uh, and being able to watch those while in the other pane, I'm actually, you know, poking the system and making it be busy and being able to watch all that at once. Yep, I think a while ago, we also covered a way to use tmux for demonstrating stuff to another person watching the, this window. And you just mm -hmm. type something and they see what you're doing. Yeah, it's uh, great for pair programming and teaching people submitting. stuff and so on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so check out the full article. That's It also has a couple of more readings at the bottom about tmux if you want to dive into other type topics like uh, synchronizing input on all panes within the window. And that's good to get started with Tmux. Uh, we stay a little bit with the Raspberry Pi in this next one. Yeah, so this is building a Samba actor directory server using FreeBSD on a Raspberry Pi. Uh, so they say, we're building an actor directory server from Samba running on FreeBSD, the free server operating system. Uh, we've also set up the needed DNS infrastructure. So in a previous post, they have an existing bind server uh, for primary. Our next step is to put together a system that will make up the secondary DNS server. 
an initial step in building the Samba-based Active Directory server. We will do this uh, with FreeBSD running on a Raspberry Pi. Okay, so it's going to be the secondary DNS server that'll be on the Pi. That makes a little more sense. We must take a few extra steps in this stage because of Samba's requirements for file system security. That requirement for POSIX access control lists, along with the admittedly uncommon combination of operating systems and hardware, means that we'll have to modify the file system. Uh, you can jump back to the start if you want an overview of this whole big project. So how to install FreeBSD on a Raspberry Pi? You know, they say initially, I uh, used the Raspberry Pi 1 model B+, plus, uh, which has the Broadcom uh, 2835 SOC, uh, which has a 700 megahertz 32-bit uh, ARM. Uh, yeah, the CPU is about the performance of a 300 megahertz Pentium 2 from 1999, but bear in mind that this is just for testing. Whereas the Raspberry Pi 3, by comparison, is a four-core CPU and it's 64-bit, so it's about 10 times the performance. Uh, it would get the Samba suite of services running faster and we'd set up easier. So we set up something like 13 Samba processes, three SMBD processes, and two WinBind processes running simultaneously. More cores would definitely help. Uh, still doesn't run the entire enterprise from one Raspberry Pi, which only costs $35. Uh, so both the Raspberry Pi 1 and the 3 have four USB ports, 100 megabit Ethernet, HDMI, audio, etc. Power it with something like a smartphone charger, ideally one that provides uh, more than the usual 100 milliamps. Uh, so they get through downloading FreeBSD and putting it in there and setting up their user account. Then they modify their rc.conf, uh, setting up DHCP on the Ethernet adapter, setting their default route, setting up some IPv6, and getting everything going. And they show outputs of their ifconfig and netstat, so you can see what's going on, routing table, and uh, trace routes to Google over v4 and v6. So then they configure syslog to do remote logging. You don't want to be writing your logs to your SD card all the time. Uh, so they send their logs off to an IP address over the network, set up their time zone, uh, and get all that working. And then they add the ACLs to all of their uh, UFS and MFS file systems uh, because Samba will require that. Uh, so they set up their root mount to have the ACL options enabled and add it to their FS tab. Okay, good start. Uh, that's because Samba requires POSIX ACLs as part of its database, uh, which gets maintained under bar DB Samba 4. It uses the ACLs as part of uh, the sysfall. So the root file system itself has been modified and TuneFS is the tool uh, to get that working and they show how that all works. And so they make sure that uh, the POSIX ACLs are enabled with TuneFS-A uh, and get everything working. So now adding Samba and bind to the Raspberry Pi. Uh, so they say I ran out of space on slash TMP while doing the initial package update. So I unmounted it for a while and let it use the root partition instead of the MFS. At the end, there isn't anything left in slash TMP, so there's uh, no need to clean up after it before we mount it. I later ran out of space again <laughs> when trying to do a package search, so I commented out uh, the line in their FS tab for now. 29 megabytes of space for slash TMP was just not enough. You know, it's a RAM-based memory device, so faster, but has a limited size. I could make it larger, but RAM is already pretty limited on this Raspberry Pi. Uh, so then they looked for packages, uh, and they found, you know, Samba 4.3. Which was the current version at the time. Uh, I think Samba will be even newer now. I think they're at 4.16. <laughs> uh, but they also installed uh, bind 9.11 to get the latest version, uh, which again, I think there's a newer version now, but 
so they get those packages installed um, and then they're off to the next steps of creating their secondary DNS server. And then they walk through all that and then getting Active Directory up and running. Uh, and they show how to use SMBD uh, and provisioning a domain using the Samba tool, getting it all set up, uh, and then being able to connect machines to the domain. Huh. So if you want to do that, and even if it's not on a Raspberry Pi, it's probably not the best idea, but if you're just playing around at home, it's great. Uh, they have uh, good instructions there on getting us a uh, Samba Active Directory domain controller running. Yeah, for getting experience in this kind of sysadministration work, mm -hmm. domain administration. You will never be out of work <laughs> doing this all day. Uh, next is a new release of Open IKED from OpenBSD, of course, or associated with it. And uh, Undeadly Org names it the Python and still tested on Linux only department. So on December 1st, 2022, the Open IKED project announced the new stable version, which is IKED 7.2. The announcement begins the following. This release includes the following changes to the previous release. Added IKED connection statistics counters that can be viewed with IKE CTL show stats. Added support for sending certificate chains and multiple search payloads. They also added open IKED vendor ID payload to improve interoperability with older versions. They also improved policy lookup by respecting the SRC NAT property. They also fixed nonce comparison bug which led to sporadic failures because of the wrong child SA got deleted oops ah and they also fixed interoperability with implementation sending more than one search payload fixed also a bug where not dash t was not working correctly on linux and various bugs and memory leaks were also fixed yeah so if you're using uh, open ikd for uh ipsec then definitely check out the new version so this next thing may be a bit odd for the typical articles that we cover. I think I kind of, you know, got on JT's nerves or whatever I deserved it. So what happens was that he gave me a German article to read. And of course, the show notes will have a translation for it. But he thought it would be nice or not so nice for you to let me translate this uh, live, right? While I'm reading this. So here goes. And this is about a KDE Plasma 5 install as a GUI. And yeah, we I could read this in German, but this is less fun for me. Uh, so here the German version goes, Today, um, the KDE Plasma 5 as a graphical user interface under FreeBSD 13 is the installation topic. Um, apart from the series that uh, is a part of a major series of articles around FreeBSD, um, Gee, why can I not read my own language anymore? <laughs> um, it's part of the tutorial series anyway. Uh, personally, for them, KDE Plasma 5 is the favorite under the desktop environments they use. and uh, The installation is even easier than XFCE for them. Okay, so the, for, uh, the <laughs> information up front. Uh, to log into the GUI as a normal user, um, you need the, a system available and the root user is by default, deactivated on the GUI, so be aware of that. Uh, either you create a user quickly, that is recommended, or the root user is allowed to the GUI, which is not recommended, right, because of security issues. The uh, 
procedure to do that is to set the root. This is in English, so that's why it's easier. Set the root password sudo passwd uh, root, and then you edit the etcsddmconf and and change the minimum UID value of thousand with uh, to minimum UID equals zero. Then in etcpam.d there's an sddm config and you need to comment out the following entry auth required pam underscore success underscore if so that the user root uh, quiet underscore success is not in Wait, there. Specifically checking if the user is not equal to root. Yeah. Uh, reboot then or reload sddm I think that should be enough and then you are allowed to log in as root into the GUI. To begin uh, with we need to install the packages first so that is based on your internet connection and speed of that, time to get a new and fresh coffee. Package install KDE 5, Plasma 5-SDDM, KCM and SDDM as well as XORG. Uh, Dbus is a type of framework for the inner process communication to get graphical user interfaces to run together. SDDM uh, stands for Simple Desktop Display Manager. This manager is for Windows systems like Wayland or X11 if needed. Uh, oh wow! This is yeah, basically, I... it prevents the the login screen and lets you pick which uh, desktop environment you want to start. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, that's why we also have to configure those as last step. These uh, two commands need to run dbus underscore enable equals yes, so that should be sysrc. You, you sysrc. Mean sysrc and start dbus services afterwards, as well as sysrc sddm underscore enable equals yes, and then also start the service sddm. Uh, after the installation of KDE 5 was successful, a login screen of KDE should be shown on screen. And since uh, Wayland is not supported yet, although FreeBSD now has a, an instruction on its uh, quite good actual menu page, in the, man, in the FreeBSD handbook there's a Wayland chapter. Uh, but besides that, in there after the login appears, in the lower left corner there is a drop-down menu that says Plasma X11 that needs to be set to this and afterwards you can then uh, log in with your normal user like always. When that problem is or once should be removed completely for forever uh, so that X11 is always selected execute the following command on the console uh, exec user local bin so you edit uh, exit RC and add a user local bin start plasma dash X11 to it with the parameter dash dash with dash CK dash launch and to conclude this. Now uh, class, uh, KDE Plasma 5 under FreeBSD is installed. Looking back, uh, that's the most time intensive of the process uh, to download and extract the package. Yeah, the configuration is pretty much uh, not too much. Uh, they hope that this works for everyone and if there are questions or problems, please add that to the comments. And now I need to find a way to get my revenge on JT. Maybe I let him read a German text. Or give him an English text and need get him into translated to German. Here we go. <laughs> okay, but Alan had the English translation from Google Translate, and I think that's fairly accurate of what I translated live. Okay, um, we're reaching the end of this episode. I hope that, that was something interesting for you. Let us know in the comment section, feedback at bsdnow.tv. We'll have future feedback uh, sections again. They're filling up again with the new year coming around. 
or has been around. Yeah, we just kind of uh, ran out of them because we had to record a bunch of shows at once to avoid the holiday. Yeah, yeah. We also need a bit of a break sometimes. I guess you understand. But yes, send us all your questions and we will get to them.